Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. There is no greater news than the fact that it is finished. Christ is risen. We're going to study Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 together this morning. But for our purposes at this particular moment, I'm just going to read the last verse in that section. Mark chapter 2, verse 12, about midway through that verse. So that they, this group of people, were all amazed. Not some of them were amazed. All of them were amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This. That's what happens when people meet Jesus. Let's pray together, and then we'll study what happened to lead them to say those things. Father, you're no less powerful than you were on this day that we're going to read about in Mark chapter 2. I pray that we are amazed by who you are. I pray that we will glorify Jesus today, continually, together. That you might even do a work in some hearts today that... That their, their confession would be, we, we've never seen anything like this before. God, for the hard heart, I pray that your word will penetrate. For the discouraged heart, Lord, I pray that your word will give, a, give great encouragement. And more than anything else, Father, we're asking as we study your word that for our own selves, by your grace and through your spirit, we can see Jesus for who he really is. That is our greatest need to truly see him. We pray this in his name. Amen. We may be seated. Uh, we're going to study here Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 together. And there's a whole lot in this section for us to see. We're going to see some faithful friends. Uh, we're going to see a man with some serious trouble in his life. Anybody got trouble in your life right now? Anybody not got trouble? Can I just hang out with you for a little while if you've not got trouble going on in your life? And more than anything else, we're going to see a Savior who has authority above it all. Amen. Can I just tell you that Jesus has authority above it all? It is a lie that often comes into our lives that something other than Jesus has authority, but he's got the authority. Let's go on and read here in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We are studying section by section, verse by verse, through the gospel of Mark. As I often tell you, this is the way that I believe is healthiest to preach and teach and study God's word is to take a book of the Bible and study it all the way through. That guards you from any agenda that I might seek to, to give it. It guards me from you thinking I just came up with these things. Amen. We're just going to study. We believe in the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. So we've uh, been in Mark 2 for a little while, uh, or the Gospel of Mark, rather, for a little while, now making our way to chapter 2. When he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, 
to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. When's the last time that God worked so in, in, in a way in your life that that was your response? We've never seen anything like this. Can I tell you, God's always up for this. He is no less powerful this morning than he was at that moment. We're the ones who tend to be, um, well, not so receptive to his word, his ways, or his power. So we're going to walk through, let's just catch up where we are in Mark uh, chapter 2. Uh, Mark's gospel moves pretty quickly. Pretty quickly, And so Jesus has taken a season where he's been away from Capernaum. You might remember Capernaum is Peter and James and John and Andrew's hometown. That's where they're from. It's a little fishing village. And Jesus set up shop there for a little while. You might recall he started his ministry by preaching in their synagogue and the demons uh, were cast out of the synagogue. Wow, just think about that. Demons were going to the synagogue. Well, Jesus began to preach as one having authority, and the demons uh, were, were cast out. And then he goes and begins to stay at Simon Peter's house. And when he gets to Simon Peter's house, remember, his mother-in-law was sick. And so Jesus heals her, and then that house becomes sort of um, ground zero for the healing and preaching ministry of Jesus. And uh, Peter assumed that things were going so well they were just going to stay there. But Jesus, after praying in a desolate place, said we got to go and preach the gospel other places. And now, after some time, he's returned to Capernaum. And his previous healing works were such that when he gets back, there's so many people in the house, back to Simon's house, most likely, right? That there was no room, not even at the door. Well, that's a problem for one person in particular. That's the paralytic. And so the, just to organize our thoughts around this passage, we're going to have a countdown. You know what a countdown is, right? Four, three, two, one, and the spaceship blasts off, or it's Happy New Year, right? But we're just going to use those numbers, four, three, two, one, to kind of go through this passage. And let's start with four. That's where our countdown will begin. Four faithful friends. Look at verse three. Again with me, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. That's where we're going to get this thought for faithful friends. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof, roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. Listen to this. Do you spend much time in the Proverbs? Are you a wise person? It's the same question, my friends, right? So uh, Proverbs, just a little hint. You've probably heard this before. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs. Most months have 31 or less days. So just read a chapter of Proverbs a day. You will be blown away by how relevant and practical it is to life. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I'm going to read that proverb one more time, and this time when I read it, you'll pick up really quickly that there's a contrast between two types of people being made. You, you, you'll hear it. You probably already know it. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What's the contrast? 
between companions and a friend. You have lots of companions, right? Companions are people you know, people you might even like, and people that you're involved with. That's what they should probably not call it Facebook friends. They should probably call it Facebook companions, right? You go on there and here's a person, they've got a thousand, well, you don't really have a thousand friends. You have a thousand people who post things and you look at them and so on and so forth. You have many companions, but very, very few friends. Do you know why you don't have many friends? Not because there's something wrong with you, because there's just not a lot of friends to be had, truthfully. When you understand what a friend really is. Here's the, here's the easiest way to know who a friend is. A friend cares about you more than they care about how you care about them. That was convoluted, wasn't it? Man, in any relationship between two people, that's how the dynamic works. Now, godly relationships, godly friendships, what's the name of our series here? We're talking about Jesus' servant and savior. Friends are people who are servants, meaning when they are in a relationship, they're not looking for what they can get from you to bless them. They're looking at how, you, how they can bless you. Does that make sense? I hope that didn't sound as confusing to you as it did in my own mind. But There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. One person said, a friend, you know, a friend is someone who walks in when everybody else has walked out. And this paralytic has four faithful friends. There's a lot that we could say about these four friends, but let's just highlight two things about them. First, they were compassionate. They were compassionate. Compassionate people don't race through life focusing on tasks They walk through life watching and listening to the real needs around them. We have to be cautious about this. If you're going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, you can't be more task-oriented than people-oriented. This is reality for many of us. I tend to be task-oriented. I tend to wake up in the day and say, here's my to-do list, and they're usually things that have to get accomplished books that need to be read or meetings that need to be prepared for and so on and so forth. And if I'm not careful, I'll go through life and so task-oriented that I don't see the legitimate needs around us. Are you aware of the fact that we live in a city with significant needs around us? And we don't want to be people who just navigate through life going through the next, from one thing to the, to the next. Compassionate people don't wake up mainly thinking of themselves, of their schedules, of their to-do lists. But they wake up ready to serve and love and give of themselves. So Jesus returns to Capernaum, and a whole lot of people have gathered at Simon's house to see him, probably to be helped by them. But there were four people in Capernaum who, when they got up, they said, we've got to get him to Jesus. And you see the different dynamic. A man of many companions may come to ruin. If this paralytic, all he had was companions... He would have been in trouble. But you know what he was blessed to have? Four faithful friends who were compassionate. Compassionate people are not complainers about the state of things around them. Instead, they seek to make wherever they are a better place through generosity and sacrifice. Amen? I mean, compassionate people are not complainers. They don't 
well about the state of things. They say, what is it that we can do to make life better? We might not be able to make life better for everybody, but there's a friend that we have that we can help. Compassionate people, compassionate people are generous and sacrificial. And again, friends, this, this, this man would not have gotten any help apart from the actions of his compassionate friends. I'm always drawn when the scripture seems to make a contrast between ideas or people, and there is a significant contrast between two groups of people in this passage. Again, we'll just read it, and you pick up pretty quickly on the contrast, right? Verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. Now, we, many of us, know this story, right? Probably many of you sitting here, we, we know the dynamics here, but can we just pause for a moment as if we've not heard it and think about how crazy this was? I mean, if I'm sitting here preaching right now and all of a sudden you hear crackling and some dust is coming off and then you look up and somebody has ripped the roof open. How shocking, how, we might even say inappropriate that would be. But how determined they were. Well, that's one group. And the other group gets exposed when Jesus makes a statement. When he saw their faith, they said, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes, okay, here's the contrast. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do you see the contrast? Can I just read the verbs to you? And you hear the contrast. Group one, the friends, they came bringing, carried the scribes sitting there questioning. If we were playing charades, you want to play charades for me? And I got assigned a scribe. That's what I was. Here's how I would do a charade scribe. You ready? Sitting there questioning. Who knows what I'm being? Come on, we're playing. That's, that's who I am. Do, do you see the contrast? And then will God give you the grace to let you have the contrast? And then, and then this is how the scripture works. Can I examine my own life? Which one are you? Which one am I? Now, I know the one that I want to be, but then I have to allow God permission. No, I don't have to allow God permission. That was a poorly chosen phrase. See, how, how am I really living my life? Who would say that I really am a friend to them? Now we've got these scribes, these, uh, these proud men sitting there, not helping anybody. In fact, a little bit later on, in, uh, as Jesus' ministry progresses, this really is a starting point that will hold true for the rest of Jesus' ministry. Everywhere he goes, no matter what he does, no matter what he teaches, no matter how he helps, the scribes are always going to be criticizing him until in Matthew chapter 23, just listen, Jesus says of them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. You might even say they lead people to have paralyzing conditions, but they themselves are not willing to move one finger to help 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Friends, compassionate people are always acting. It's one of the most faithful teachings through the Gospels. Anytime the word compassion comes up, there's always action, right? For example, same point by and large Jesus is making in the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man fell among robbers who left him half dead, and there came by chance a priest and then a Levite. And what happens? They both pass by on the other side, but then a Samaritan comes and seeing the man he had, who knows the word? Compassion. Generous and sacrificial. He gets off his own animal, ties up the wounds, takes him to make sure he's cared for. Or my favorite parable, the parable of the prodigal son, the young man came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough food to eat? But here I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So not many days later, he went back. And while his father saw him when he was still a long way off and felt compassion. And here's the action. Ran to him, embraced him, said, kill the fatty calf. We're going to have a celebration. Everybody was excited about it except who? The older brother. And in that same story, Luke 15, chapter 1, you can go look it up. You can read it. And that time, the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus, but the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I'm making a point about this because I believe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should always be known more for its compassionate actions than its complaining and criticizing. Amen? The people who follow Jesus should always be more known for their crazy actions of taking the roof off than they just sit around arms folded complaining about the state of things. Well, one, they're compassionate. Second, so what I love about these friends is another mark of a real friend. They were certain they could help their friend if they could just get him to Jesus. Amen? So whatever your goal is, if you say, I'm really going to be a friend to somebody, here's how you can be a real friend, is you're leveraging your creativity, your, 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 your uh, uh, cooperation to the point of getting others to Jesus. Because that's your goal in your friendships. I think every believer in Jesus should be intentional in most everything that they do. So if you've got friends who are believers in Jesus, your goal is to continue to encourage them unto Christ's likeness. If you've got friends who are not believers in Jesus, the goal is to be an accurate representation of Jesus and to do whatever you need to do to get them to Jesus. I'm going to put a picture on the screen that might just help us. I don't know how we, uh, hopefully you can see that pretty well, but this is um, sort of an artist's rendering of what a house would look like in Capernaum so that we're all on the same page about what this whole roof-taking-off deal was. Hey, guess what? You're about to feel blessed. No air conditioning back then. None. And so you got a lot of people gathered together, right? And you get in the house, um, and, and in those days, of course, you didn't even have to have a large group of people to, to be stifling hot. So what they did is, is their roofs were really maybe what you would 
use your own deck for. If you have a deck, if you put the grill out there, and it's just a place that you can go out and you relax and you can chill. And just, so, so if you look at that, you can see that you walked up there, maybe you got a nice sea breeze going, and it's just a nicer place to be. You know, you just have one room in your house, and so there's often a stairway that would lead up to the roof, and then the roof itself was made up of branches <coughs> and mud and, and clay and that sort of thing so that it could bear your weight, but you could take it apart. You could get on your hands and knees and start digging. And then you get one clump up and some of it falls down into the floor. You imagine Jesus standing there teaching and all of a sudden the dirt starts falling. So the roof, they're up there. They've, they've carried the paralytic up the stairs. And knowing the roof's like that, listen to the verse again. They could, got, they could not get near him, right? They walked up. The doorways are full. Can, can we just say, by the way, for the house to be full and for the scribes to be sitting on the floor is pretty rude, isn't it? You remember what Jesus said, that they love to sit in the places of honor, right? Stand up. Make some room. Anyway, I digress, but not really the point there. So, so they got near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening... I mean, you're going to lower a guy down. This is quite an opening. It's not a little pinprick hole. That's, you know. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I'm sure they went slow. It's interrupted everything, hasn't it? Jesus. (laughs) But Jesus saw their faith. You see, your faith always shows up in actions. Faith is not some um, vague concept. They believed if they could get their friend to Jesus, Jesus could help him. My son, your sins are forgiven. They were determined to do whatever was necessary to get their friend to Jesus. They defied conventional wisdom, right? It's the last crazy thing you did. To the, everybody else that said, this makes no sense, but I'm going to do this if it means my friend will see or get to Jesus. And, and they refused to give up. This really helped me this week. Really, another way of saying this really challenged me this week. And I think in my life, in my life, the picture would be, got to the house, oh, too many people. What can we do? And if somebody would say, well, we can't get in, but we can go up and we can go down, I would probably say, oh, that's crazy. That's impolite. That's, uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I, I read and reread and read. There's just no getting around the fact that that was crazy. It was unconventional. But friends, I don't know in this book if you've read it, but the gospel And the word of God doesn't ever really seem to go (laughs) advanced through conventional means. Well, they refused to quit when most others like me would have given up. I would have said, well, at least we tried. I admire their tenacity, don't you? I'm spurred on by what they did. They're they're, they're creative and they're persistent. And friends, if you're going to be a real friend to others, not just a companion... In fact, Christian companion is a misnomer, or at least should be, an oxymoron. Sometimes, sometimes it means doing things 
that don't just that don't square with the way things are normally done. For example, I've got to be honest. There have been many times, many times I've been burdened for lost friends that I know and love. And I and I pr- I pray things like this, y'all. God, open up a door for me to share the gospel with them. And then we'll go out to dinner. I do this on occasion. I meet with some buddies that I know and love and known them for a long time, and we'll meet, you know, and 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 then I'll enter the restaurant and sit down and say, God, you open up a door. And and what does that really mean? And I, and I'm I'm kind of sitting there saying, maybe one day they'll come along and they'll just look me in the eye and say, Brandon, would you tell me about Jesus? So really, really, honestly, what I'm trying to get at is this action that they took was awkward, unconventional, disruptive, but it was a clear action, wasn't it? Sometimes in conversation, it's the equivalent, well, it didn't come up, oh, the house is too crowded, there was no room to get in. Well, guess what? When the door is crowded, guess what you got to do sometimes? In conversation, the equivalent of (laughs) poking a hole, ripping the roof up, and being tenacious in a helpful, godly way. Now, if we can put these things together, the compassion and the tenacity go together. A really unhelpful way to be is tenacious and not compassionate, amen? I mean, that's just uh, not helpful in advancing the gospel. Mark Rogop is a, a preacher that I admire a lot, and he has a phrase that he uses uh, frequently, and, uh, and I like it. So when he talks about proclaiming the gospel in church life, he says, we seek to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. That's a great phrase, isn't it? We build a bit bridge of grace that can then bear the weight of truth. It's not easy to carry that man up to the roof, but he's carried up there by people who were compassionate, who didn't leave him behind, who didn't overlook. I mean, his condition in that culture, that time, in that place was one of shame, ridicule, and forgottenness. And here we see that Jesus and those who love him are for the forgotten and the overlooked. You know what else I love about this passage? Is that whose house are they at? They're at Simon's house. His mother-in-law is probably there. Remember her? Mark 1.30 or 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And uh, he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. So just real quick. What do you think they were thinking when they saw their roof was ruined? I actually think Simon's mother-in-law was okay with the damage done to her roof. I mean, she knew in her own life what it was like to need healing. Amen? So here's an application. For those who have been helped by Jesus, their material possessions are not more important than people who likewise need help. And that's who we have to be. That's what this building needs to be. That's what the, our, our material possessions 
are not things that we hoard and then somebody comes along and puts a hole in your roof say I can't believe you did that well, if we know who Jesus is I can't believe there aren't more holes in roofs four friends compassionate friends who leveraged their day to get a friend to Jesus who are you a friend like this to right now we're still counting down we get four four friends three we'll move quickly three truths that we see about Jesus and I get these from a recent sermon I heard from David Platt who made these three observations about Jesus from this passage first we do see here that Jesus knows the thoughts in our hearts you picked up on this no doubt in verse 6 now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, spoke to them. Has this ever happened to you? Maybe you're sitting in school and you thought you were being so secretive about passing that note. They probably don't do this anymore. You just text each other probably in school now. But when I was coming along, you slip a note. And then all of a sudden the teacher says, let me have that note. And you're like, oh my goodness. But do you know you have a God doesn't see the passing of the note he knows what's on the note why you wrote the note and then why you really wrote the note you know what I'm saying he knows the thoughts of the heart what it says there where were they questioning questioning in their hearts you've not thought anything about anything at any time that he doesn't know exactly what you thought now we kind of condition ourselves to hide our true thoughts so that no one else may see them. But we don't ever hide it from him. My favorite scenes in the Old Testament is when Abraham, God's confirming again his covenant with Abraham, and uh, Sarah overhears God saying again that a son's going to be going, and she laughs, right? She's like, we've been talking about this a long time, and I'm well past the... Uh, a child rearing or child having season of life and God comes up to her and says that you laughed and Sarah says I didn't laugh this is one little verse there the Lord says no but you did laugh and then the scene ends I just love that scene it says we are so quick to think that we can cover up whatever it is but he knows he knows can I, can I balance this thought Tim Keller puts it this way God knows you better than anybody and loves you more than anybody. And both are true. Now they thought they were sitting there and they're going to have their little theological debate in this uh, Capernaum preacher guy, Jesus, that they're smarter than him, they're wiser than him, and they know better than him. And Jesus perceives, knows exactly what they're saying. He knows not just the thoughts, but the motivations behind them. He knows the very condition of our hearts. And can I tell you, friends, on the authority of Scripture, he knows the condition of our hearts, and we don't think you know yourself. You don't know yourself. You continually deceive yourself. The Bible says the heart. This is an interesting verse in light of the advice we always receive to follow your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You don't even understand yourself. One, Jesus knows the thoughts of our hearts. Second, Jesus can heal. Amen? No matter what condition 
that man had when he was lowered into that room, Jesus can heal it. And this will be a major thing throughout the Gospel of Mark. We will see that neither demons, disease, nor death itself has the final word. Jesus does. Alzheimer's does not have the last word. Cancer does not have the last word. Heart disease, Parkinson's, tumors, ALS, dementia, diabetes, paralysis, failing kidneys, strokes, nor anything else we could name have the last word. Jesus does. He will say in his providence, and I know those realities are hard in life, but for those who believe and trust Jesus, a day's coming, friends, when he's going to say, rise and walk, and that mat, that wheelchair, that hospital bed, that whatever, you can leave it, rise and walk, because your sins are forgiven. That's number three. Jesus can forgive sin. Now, friends, all suffering has something behind it, and that something is sin. Behind all of our suffering is sin. We do not hide from the fact that the world is full of awful things, and trouble, and suffering is great. We long for the day that Jesus returns, and we have a new heaven, and a new earth, and new bodies. We need somebody who can deal not just with our physical suffering, but someone who can deal with what it is that's behind all of that. What good does it do to heal a man of paralysis if 40 years later he'll die of cancer? What good does it do to raise Lazarus from the dead if it's inevitable that he'll return to the grave in a matter of time? We need someone who can deal with our sin. We need someone, and no physician on planet Earth can do this, to go into our hearts and deal with everything that is wrong and unholy and unrighteous and impure. The scribes Hey, this is what they do have going for them. They're 100% correct. Only God can forgive sin. But who is it that's standing in the house? It's God come in the flesh. It's Luke chapter 2. I bring you good news of a great joy which will be for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, not all of our physical diseases not all of our physical difficulties are healed immediately, but when you believe in Jesus, when you have faith in Jesus as your Lord, that he has died for your sins, he has substituted himself in your place, you can be forgiven immediately. Four friends, three truths about Jesus, two urgent needs. The two needs that this man has, one, he's very aware of one, and two, not so aware of the other. And we have that in common with him. First, he has an urgent physical need. His condition, right? His condition of paralysis affects everything about his life. And that need is always before him. There's not a moment of his life that he's not aware of his paralysis. Physical suffering is so hard. Can we just pause for a moment? If you are physically well enough to be here right now, I mean, you got yourself here, you walked into this room, you're sitting here right now, what is the reason that we're not on our knees thanking the Lord? 
These bodies we are currently living in, you know you have a body, but you're not a body. Does that make sense? God gave a body, but he created man in his image. Men and women with a mind, will, emotion, and a body. But you have a soul. The body gives out. You don't stop existing. You're just done with that temporary body. But man, these bodies are prone to all sorts of infirmities. They are not built to last. Sin has affected the mind, the will, the body, and the soul. That means our bodies are cursed. Our minds, because of sin, are more likely to think on the wrong thing than the right thing apart from Jesus. Our wills, what we decide, we desire to do things that don't lead to life. They lead to death. They're not helpful. They're actually harmful. And behind all that is a soul that is sick unto death. But because our physical issues appear more urgent, paralysis, they can blind us to the fact when Jesus speaks to him, it's what he says. It's the whole point of the passage. He doesn't say, my son, your paralysis is healed. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And because our physical issues appear more urgent, they can blind us to the fact that we do have a sickness that goes deeper than the body. In other words, the paralytic had greater problems than paralysis. And now can we, can we get sort of a, a hard but true truth, if I can say it that way? The end of the day, therefore, was his paralysis a blessing or was it a curse? Time and again, when I speak with people who have humbled themselves and really sought the Lord, very often the starting point when they saw their need for Jesus was in the midst of great physical or emotional hardship. One of my really good friends about a year ago went home to be with the Lord was Bill Brantley and I talked with Pat on Friday and because it's almost been a year since Bill went home to be with the Lord and and Bill was a friend to me almost unlike any other friend that I have as a young man many of you know his story became uh, paralyzed but but Bill when we'd meet all he ever wanted to talk about was the Lord. And not because I was the preacher, right? The preacher's coming, always supposed to talk about the Lord. But I'd walk in, and man, Bill, he dealt with all sorts of hardships. But I don't know, I don't know in my own life if I've ever met somebody whose soul was stronger. Do you know what I mean? And when I think of Bill's life, his life preaches this point. Paralysis can actually be a blessing if it draws you to Jesus because the paralysis is temporary, the forgiveness of sins is forever. And these men know that their friend has an issue that Jesus can help with. I'm not sure they knew how profoundly Jesus could help them. 
his faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. God sometimes permits hard things in our lives because apart from the hard things in our temporary lives, we'd never be drawn to the deeper eternal hope that we need. We'd go through life blind. And then four friends, three truths about Jesus, two urgent needs. And by the way, can I give us as a church a real helpful application? Do we minister to physical or spiritual needs? Amen. <laughs> yes. You don't have to choose between the two. Often it works this way. If we don't have the bridge built to minister to spiritual needs until we've been helpful meeting people's physical needs. So to put it, put it one, but it's not, a, it's not a bridge to nowhere, right? Do we feed the hungry, travel to build wells, help the hurt, of, of course, of course, of course, to the, to the end of proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to minister physically without spiritually is a bridge to nowhere. To try to minister spiritually without meeting physical needs is rarely a bridge at all. That brings us to one on our countdown. One major point. What is the major point of this passage? Verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, so that you, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The one major point is, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. No one else does. Now I tell you, you don't have the authority to forgive your own sins. Some people think like that. Well, I'm just learning to forgive myself. Well, hallelujah and amen. Can you imagine David committed adultery and had Bathsheba's husband killed and he just comes to a point in his life, well, I've made mistakes, but I've just learned to forgive myself. Well, Uzziah, the husband of mine, said, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem fair. The whole point of the gospel. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 3, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God in his grace has put forth Jesus as a propitiation for our sins to be received by faith so that he could be, listen to the Bible, just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and the justifier. In other words, he's not unjust in your justification, nor did he justify you in a way that was not fair. How does he do it? Well, Peter had a roof put in his hole that, uh, a hole within his roof that day. A little bit later on in his life, he wrote these words. It's, it's worth a roof getting a hole in it to learn these things, by the way. Peter says of Jesus, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on it says the three, but it should say the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. What's been healed? It's been healed. Your sin has been healed. A little bit later in the same letter, for Christ also suffered once for sins. See, if you could see it from God's vantage point, our sinful condition is much more serious and significant than our paralyzed condition, than our physical infirmities. But Jesus suffered physically in his body and he suffered spiritually the separation from the Father, that the, right, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, Jesus came and took our sin in order to give us his righteousness. We are saved when we have faith, when we believe that Jesus has done this. Faith is relying on Jesus that he has done what he said he would do. Now, in conclusion, we want to be a people who proclaim this gospel by sacrificially serving those with great physical needs in a manner that gets to the deeper spiritual needs. There is no lack of suffering in the world, and Christians should be on the front lines in the face of great physical suffering. We don't have to choose between ministering to physical or spiritual needs. Jesus doesn't, so we won't. We should see the two are actually irrevocably linked. To minister to the soul without ministering to the body is presumptuous. A hungry person needs Jesus, but they also need to be fed. But to minister to the body but not the soul is incomplete. We are more than a body. We have eternal souls. So a few concluding exhortations. One, you are going to have to persevere in getting people to Jesus. There will be obstacles constantly. If you are waiting for this, like this aisle right here, and it's just going to be nice, smooth, easy, and there's no obstacles, I'm going to bring people to Jesus, and we're just, that's not, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. You're going to get the doors that are too crowded and doors that seem closed. You be careful when you say that the door is closed, that you don't need to climb up on top of the roof and poke a hole in it. There are going to be significant obstacles. You can almost, it'll almost feel like the world, flesh, and the devil are conspiring against you to prevent you from bringing people to Jesus. And you know why it will feel that way? Because they are. There's going to be indifference. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be people who tell you that roofs shouldn't have holes in them. There are going to be other people that tell you that carrying the paralytic up the stairs is too costly. There are going to be other people who are going to tell you the paralytic should learn to handle his own problems. And all the while, plenty, plenty, plenty of unhelpful, just sitting there with their arms folded scribes, criticizing you every step of the way. Keep going anyway. You know what keeps you going? We'll end with the last verse there. Never saw anything like this. Never saw anything like this. How's your we never saw anything like this meter this morning? Do, do you know who is determined? Do you know who is determined to get other people to Jesus? those who've been healed by Jesus. 
Do you know who it is that says, well, yeah, I, yeah, it's obstacles, and that's going to be costly, and that's going to be financially costly, and that's going to be take a lot of time, but we're going to keep going. Do you know who keeps going? The person who knows who it is that they're going to. Amen? I love in Revelation, in chapter 5 in particular, when we get a little glimpse of heaven. I mean, we got, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's a little bit uh, <laughs> unlike anything we see in earth. We got four living creatures, and it says they keep falling down, and they're on their knees, and the elders are on their knees, and they're crying out to Jesus, and they're saying, worthy is the Lamb. Every time I read that, do you know what I realize? Heaven, heaven has never gotten over their amazement of what Jesus has done. And I want to have that in common with them. Because we are a get over it and move on to the next thing culture, aren't we? Whatever was trending last Sunday wasn't trending last Monday. And it sure wasn't trending Tuesday. We just move on to the next thing. You know what? You know what? <laughs> if you've been saved, if you've been reconciled, if you've seen Jesus, never saw anything like this. And the searching for the next thing is over because you found the real thing. No one will ever take a greater measure to get people to Jesus. It's my last statement. So we listen. We're still good. No one will ever take a greater measure to get people to Jesus than Jesus has taken in getting to you. And it won't be long, friends. Let's talk about a hole in the roof. He's going to split a hole in the sky. Things going to rip open. I just want you to know in my own life, you pray this for me and I'm going to pray it for you. When that happens, God forbid, when he puts a hole in the roof, that I'm sitting complaining. I want to be found like halfway up the stairs. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm going up. Oh, he's back. But until that happens, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to stop, sit. That saved me. I'm going to go to Belgium. Go to Belgium. I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm going to go to Belgium on Thursday believing there is a Savior. And I'm going to meet whoever the Lord has for me to meet and talk to them about Jesus because I can guarantee it doesn't matter. It does not matter if it were Belgium, the Czech Republic, Mozambique, Taiwan, Nash County, Enfield, wherever. I can guarantee you when it comes to Jesus, nobody has ever seen anything like this. Stand together and we'll pray together. Would you join me in praying? Would you join me in praying? The Holy Spirit's going to lead you to pray. We've used the word of God to proclaim the truth of God. Now the Holy Spirit will lead our prayer time, our, our invitation time.